When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we made a decision, and by we I mean Lychee. No, but... but, but um, <laughs> she, was, she certainly was involved in the little discussion group. To, um, we had a speaker who was very keen to come. And he's keen to come maybe next year if we do this and it would have been fun enough. Then we made a decision. We thought and prayed and talked and thought, no, let's, let's just let's go with this. And then, um, but I did, I feel for you not getting the fresh. It is just nice to hear someone different. So thank you for your patience. But I'm not asking you to come back over dinner and say, oh, no, Ian, it was great. Don't say anything. Talk to someone else. That's okay. <laughs> but um, but it, is, it is particularly challenging when you come to a passage which you kind of probably know so well. Um, one of the sort of a, for me, what I think is, is a speaker's nightmare is this from Ezekiel chapter 33, where the people say, come, this is, come and hear the word that is coming from the Lord. And so they come and in verse 32, and behold, God says to Ezekiel, you are to them like one who plays lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Now, I don't think it's fair in any way, shape or form to parallel you with the people in Ezekiel's day who were particularly stiff-necked. But that is one of my fears, has been for years, that even if it was possible to speak in such a way that it sounds like a beautiful musical performance, people go, hmm, and go out unchanged, which is where God's word led us to last week, wasn't it, in James? For all of us, and I'm pleased, I'm, not, I'm, not talk, I'm talking for me, if, if I am not a different man this week in some significant ways, it will be very disappointing that I've, I've listened, I've thought, I've worked on these parts of Jesus' word. And there will be ways in which we get reminded, we get refreshed, we get, oh, that's right. Or maybe we think, oh, that's not the way that Jesus' disciples should be doing things. Here's a, a better way. 
Let's pray to him. He's here and ask for his continual help. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for your love and patience with us. And we do ask that as we listen to your words now, uh, we would hear them as your words and that they would raise us from sleep, correct us and enthuse us that we may live truly as your disciples. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, I, I learned how to play golf when I was 13. Uh, I didn't have a coach, although I guess technically Bill Francis taught me. He was the guy that took me to a Lara golf course after school and we played some rounds of golf. And, you know, because I'm, you know, okay at sport, I wasn't as bad as some. And so because I was playing with other mugs, I thought I was actually pretty good, really, until I played with a real golfer. Oh, my goodness, that's a different sport. Um, 20-something years later, I had my first golf lesson from a man who was a very fine golf coach. He coached a New South Wales golfing team and a few other things. And I discovered that there were things that I concentrated on doing that were absolutely wrong, that I would remind myself to do them as I was lining up to say, take a very important shot. And actually, it was just mistaken. One of the particular things I had wrong was how hard I held the club. And the man actually said to me, are you like a builder's labourer or something like that? Because you are <laughs> kidding? I'm the opposite of a builder's labourer, you know. <laughs> but because uh, I held the club so hard, I had to learn all sorts of things. I had to unlearn things. And so if someone says to you, who taught you to pray? It'd be interesting to know who, who did teach you to pray? Because I imagine most of us learn how to pray in the same way that I learned how to play golf. I just kind of did it and pretty much copied Bill Francis, who was no good anyhow, but he's a nice bloke. He picked up a few tips here and there. But here's a time when, as you saw, Jesus' disciples, after he has been praying, they say, could you teach us to pray? How do we do this? And there's an eagerness to learn something about Jesus or something from Jesus and how to pray. And as was noted, this seems to have been a thing that disciples asked their teachers to do. We don't actually know what John taught his disciples. We've got a number of other ones from Judaism around this time. And some of the parts of the prayer, individual parts, are not dissimilar to parts uh, that Jesus suggests we pray. Because all of them are deriving from the Old Testament, from the Word of God. But here's where Jesus says, I will teach you about how to talk to my father. And it was right that we noticed this use of father. It is a distinctive thing about Jesus' teaching. One of the one or two things that scholars who study these things much more deeply than I ever could or would suggest it's one of the new things Jesus brings, calling, uh, opening the door for individual believers in God to address God as father. And in verse 2, as was noted, when Jesus begins the teaching, and then at verse 13 at the end, is reminding us that God is our Father. Now, whether you've had a very bad father or just an average father or a really excellent father, we know what fathers are supposed to be like. That's On that basis, we sort of criticise our own fathers. And if we are fathers, we try to do it better. But a father, someone who is an authoritative figure, um, particularly in those days with the responsibility to provide and protect and to guide. Right? And uh, frankly, I've, as you know, I've got three people on the planet can call me father. They're Claire, the Canberra one, because I've got one living in Sydney, one in Canberra, one in Melbourne. The, the Canberra one, I don't, know if she's, I don't think she does it much now, but where she was growing up, she would call me father. And sometimes she'd call me father dear, which I think she got from some book she read somewhere. 
um, Anne of Green Gables or something like that, perhaps. But people looked at me as if I was a weird. I said, no, 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 I've never asked her to call me father or father dear. But, um, <laughs> but either way, that, you know that there's a power in that relationship and in that word that, you know, apart from Alison, um, those th- three gals have got a call on my strength, my worry, my every capacity that none of you have. You can call me Ian. It's one of the things I used to discuss with the JWs who've got the wrong name for God anyhow. But um, they say calling God, we can call God by name. Well, I said, oh, well, big deal. I can call lots of people by name. Lots of people can call me by name. Only three people can call me dad, which is the word that Jesus consistently uses for this. And that's the relationship which Jesus uh, wants us to see is at the heart and soul of prayer. It's interesting when they, when they say to Jesus, teach us to pray, he does not say, let me give you a few techniques. You'll find often enough in Christian circles, people will give you techniques. And, and, and they're not, you know, some of them are very helpful. Some of them have been tried and tested for hundreds of years. But it's interesting and important that Jesus doesn't start there. He says, when you pray, say... Because the basic sense of prayer, and the basic sense of prayer in the Bible is it's asking. Uh, That's what it is, it's asking. Now, there are other things you can do as you relate to God completely appropriately. But basically, as you see, when Jesus does teach about prayer, he's talking about asking. Asking our our dad, a father who is rather wealthy. Jesus himself, in, in just the chapter before this, in chapter 10, when the disciples come back and he said, don't be too excited about that, be excited that your name's in the book. And then he said, says, at that time, full of joy, and this is a word that does, it's more exuberant, it's dancing around joy. Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. Right? And here you've got Jesus as he does, I think it's true that in all but one prayer, Jesus addresses God as Father. And it's only when he cries out the prayer of desolation on the cross, when it seems he's been pushed and is taking the position of the enemy as he takes our sins. At that point, quoting from the Old Testament, he calls God God. But every other time when he prays, it's Father. That's the basic thing. And what he's doing for you and I is inviting us into that. It's a remarkable intimacy that he gives us. And it is worth always, I think, stopping at the beginning of prayer. I'm about to do what I just said Jesus doesn't do, and that's to give a bit of generalised advice on prayer. Uh, one of the things that I think is shown, perhaps, in what Jesus does is, is what people call recollection, to, to recall what you're doing, right? who you're talking to. There's a guy called Michael Dacey who was a minister at Gungahlin when I arrived in Canberra. He's sort of gone into semi-retirement. Michael had a... He's the only guy I've known who's done this... But you'll be talking with Michael, and I remember exactly where we were when he first did it. You're talking with Michael about stuff, and suddenly he'll be talking to God. And it kind of takes a few... Okay, we're praying. Okay. And it wasn't pretentious, and it, it does it, he's done it once, once or twice when I've been with him. And which makes sense, because if, if I'm in a small group and I'm talking with Louisa and Andrew, and, and Andrew hasn't said anything for a while... I don't say to Louise, um, I'm just going to talk to Andrew now. And, you, know, it just, you just involve him in the conversation. But he would suddenly start talking to, to Father. And it was, it, was, it was kind of wonderful and natural. He was in that sort of 
connection with his father, knowing that he was there and he could take all his needs and concerns that we've been talking about straight to God. Well, have a look at the Lord's Prayer. We're only going to be on it briefly because what Jesus says is, when you pray, say. This is, this is a prayer he expects us to use and also perhaps to use it as headings. It's in two very clear parts. As was mentioned, the Lord's Prayer, this prayer given in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, has an extra phrase or two, but it's the same basic prayer. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then it goes on to talk about us, us, us. It's worth noting the prayer is divided into two very clear halves, having remembered who you're dealing with and why that gives you confidence. The first two things may be things that you've never, ever really prayed. That God's name would be hallowed. We're coming up to Halloween, apparently, uh, which is, you know, you, you'll know it's a, it comes from a, a Christian festival, the hallowing of this particular day. It's now just a money-making thing and a culture with very little to celebrate. We'll pick up a thing from anywhere and celebrate it. But um, the idea of hallowing something means setting it apart as special. And the first thing Jesus says that his disciples should pray about is the name of God, the reputation of God, how he is treated, how he is related to. You can bring this prayer with you to any area of concern in your own life, that your life today, in the next five minutes, how you pack up, etc., how you do whatever you do in the next couple of hours, that you would be honouring him in the way that you do it. You can pray for your church or your life group or anything you like in terms of may I, may it bring honour to you. Because the shocking thing in our world is that God is constantly treated appallingly. Right? And instead of us living in a constant world of thankfulness, here we are surrounded by all these magnificent weird animals, beautiful trees, wonderful people, ridiculously tasty breakfasts. And instead of constantly you know, singing praises to this God, he is treated very badly. Um, and we're going to pray with Jesus that this would be reversed, that God would be honoured. The misuse of his name and the name of his son as a swear word, is, is in, it's, sort of, it's not the main game, but it's an indication that he is not hallowed. He is not being treated as honourable. Because you know, the other swear words we have, are, you know, they're indicative of uh, contempt. But the first section is, may his name be honoured. May his kingdom come. This is what he sends the disciples out in chapter 10, to let them know that the kingdom has come. And you'll find in the very last verse of the book of Acts, it just draws this complete parallel between preaching the message of Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom, because he's the king. The king has come. Calling people to know him is calling people into the kingdom and all the transformation that that will mean for them and for others. So the first thing is to pray about the name of God and the spread of his kingdom. And I suggest you can pray about almost any concern. In fact, if you can't pray a concern that you have in one of these headings, it's good to reflect on it. Hmm, I wonder what's going on there. But they're the first two. Moving quickly along, he then comes to the us prayers. People have drawn attention to the fact that it is an us prayer. Uh, we can, I think, use it individually. But it's seen as a prayer that the family uh, will pray together. And we pray for our daily bread, which just, I think, means our daily bread, our, our basic needs. Uh, you might, we do sometimes think, I shouldn't worry God about something that petty. But frankly, if it's, if it's enough to worry you, it's enough to take it to God in prayer. 
If it unsettles your soul, if it causes you some concern, take it to God. Yes, I, I do think I wouldn't advise it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with people praying for a car park. I, I'm gonna, I only pray for it when I'm sort of running late for a funeral or something like that, you know, where I think it which doesn't happen, by the way. So if you have a funeral, I'll be there on time. But, but something where you think there's some significance in this. But, um, uh, but the first thing is just our needs. And you can pray for that for a community. Don't worry, I'm not about to you know, ask you to give hundreds of thousands of dollars today um, to bless future generations with the building. But that's just our daily needs. right? There are things that we need, things that, that make it possible to, hang, you know, to keep going, and we pray for that. The next thing Jesus talks about is our sin. My need of his forgiveness day by day for the sins of yesterday, the sins of this morning. Um, and also the chance to remember, is there someone else who I need to forgive so that we don't allow these things to grow big? Martha could have prayed that, forgiving her lazy sister, perhaps. Our daily needs, our needs of forgiveness and protection from evil and temptation, which is slightly more expanded in the, in the prayer in Matthew 6. We, are, we live in danger. Uh, you have no idea what this afternoon has in mind, what the evil one may have laid a trap for you. And my reading of the way the devil works, he's happy to lay a trap that will keep going for He'll set it up, making you weaker and weaker, softer and softer, more and more self-pitying before the temptation steps up. And he, he does seem to me to play the long game. So to pray that God would keep me safe from temptation is the prayer of a wise woman or a wise man. And it's also the prayer of a disciple. So that's the prayer that Jesus says to pray. And I just want to ask you whether or not you pray it. Do you do what Jesus says? You know, when you pray, pray this. I find sometimes when, when I'm sort of up and about and in a hurry to stop and pray the Lord's Prayer about the specifics that I'm about to be involved in is very helpful. Uh, Helpful in a silly way, that is, it orientates me well, but in the much more important way, you are actually getting the help of God. Uh, the most significant thing in prayer is not that you feel the presence of God, which is wonderful when you do, or feel comforted. It's that you've actually sent the message to the one who can help, and he will, as we'll see. So do have a look, friends, if, whether or not you actually do follow the simple instruction from Jesus. Now, you may think, oh, you know, I went to a religious school and we prayed the Lord's Prayer ten times a day. I can't bear it. Get over that. Right. Right. You might have eaten terrible hamburgers. It's no reason not to go to America. Right? And, and just, you've got to get over these silly things. And, and, and you can pray about it, that God will help you. I, I found in my one big overseas jaunt, where I, you do, when you're overseas in the Middle East and places like that, you run into a few churches. You do get a bit overdosed on churches. But I, I had a little ritual I'd do, and I told the guide that I had when I was in Jordan, I'm going to go and just spend a couple of minutes just praying the Lord's Prayer in every one. Uh, there were very few Anglican churches there. I don't know what's wrong with them. But there were you know, Catholic, Orthodox, all sorts of different sort of Maronite churches. And just go in, kneel and pray the prayer Jesus gave us. And I don't want to get all spooky, but it's kind of nice. I think some of them, that prayer has been being prayed in different languages for almost a thousand years. But so to put the prayer to work, that's why Jesus gives us. So that's the first thing, what to pray. Now, it's interesting that the rest of this section... Coming on the back of the part that says, slow down and sit at the feet of Jesus, which does focus on him and his word, 
it makes sense that the next thing is about what, you know, our discussion with God, our sort of response to him. Listening to the Son, speaking to the Father. The Trinity is all through here, isn't it? You know, and, and what's the big gift at the end? The Holy Spirit. Father, Son and Spirit. So what are we going to do with Jesus' prayer? Well, the next thing Jesus does is he then gives us encouragement to pray. I, I remember we had this crazy... In my first time at Moore College, um, we had a lecturer who was mad in a nice way called Bill Lawton. And uh, Bill came out of one of those... Uh, chapel services where a more college student had, had preached. And he said, I'm sick and tired of you blokes, the way you preach. Okay. He said, you're always telling me what to do. You never give me the energy to do it. I know what I should be doing. I just lack the energy to do it. If you blokes could help energise me and help me to see why and to believe that God can empower me to do it, that's what I need. It was a great moment. But what Jesus does in the next three little sections is he gives you reason to pray, as if you should need it. Because he, he obviously agrees with Mad Bill Lawton at that point. That what we often need is, the, is, why would I do this? Why would I do what is sometimes the most instinctive, natural thing in the world? You can't help yourself but pray. But other times it just seems hard work compared to other options. As you know, we've got um, uh, Patrick Cole is speaking back at home base. And uh, if you're dissatisfied with the teaching you've had this morning, go to the four o'clock service. Now, Patrick Cole is an old St. Matt's guy, but I was lectured by his father, Dr. Alan Cole, who was one of the cutest men in the world. He was a little man. He was Irish, had a beautiful temperament, had the weirdest umbrellas. And, um, <laughs> but he, he was great. But he, used to, he had all sorts of interesting things he taught me. But... Um, one of the things he said, no one needs a how-to-pray book on the night before their exams. And I thought, no, that's not, that's not bad. He's saying, if, if you're anxious enough and fearful enough, you'll pray. You know, you'll get something out between you and God to make or whatever deals you're going to make. But what he does here is that there's three sections, all of which I want to suggest to you major on the question of need. Verses 5 to 8 is a friend in need. Verses 9 and 10 are promises for the needy. And verses 11 and 13 are the father who helps the needy children. This is the, this is the assumption of Jesus in prayer, that we, we are needy, physically, daily bread, spiritually, right? forgiveness, protection, and we are in need for help if we're going to be fellow workers in the work of the, of the kingdom of God. The first story takes us back to that sacred duty that we barely touched on, um, that, that of hospitality, which Martha is responding to. It, it's right for us to be hospitable, but in, in the Middle East still, it's almost a sacred duty. And it's a thing, it's one of the ways in which Christian churches can um, you know, really be distinctive in loving people is to invite people that you meet at church back to your place. Uh, and it can be simple. In fact, it nearly has to be simple. Otherwise, you'll terrify them of ever inviting you back to their place if it's become a master chef thing. Just some hospitality to come back to your place. And I know many of you do this. You meet a person at church, invite them back. And just keep it simple. It can be that day or invite them back sometime of the week. But hospitality, it's a sacred duty. And that's what lies behind the story that you heard read. Uh, there's a man, he has a friend who arrives at midnight. Uh, and uh, his duty is to feed him. I mean, he would have wanted to do it as well, but, he, but there was a very strong culture. I think it's his responsibility, but he's got no food. So 
you know, they didn't have all night shops, etc. So he goes to a friend next door and says, a friend of mine has come on a journey. I've got no food to feed him. This is a crisis. Suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. And that's probably in the, in the, middle, in the middle East end. They're all in the one bed, which is how the, most of the families did. So they're all in bed together. You think you need an extension? They're they're all in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Are you kidding? Midnight. There's no torches. He's got to light something, scurry around. It's a very inconvenient thing. But then, as, as you heard, drawing attention to that crazy word, I tell you, even though Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This is a need. This man needs the bread. It's not just that the man who's coming is dying of starvation. But in that culture, you, you were really seriously honour bound to feed. So he says, you, ha- you need this bread because your friend needs some food. And he said, even if your next door neighbour doesn't do it because of friendship, in fact, you may have just wrecked your friendship with that neighbour by knocking at midday. He will do it because you're so audacious. You're just hammering on the door like for those of you who are old enough to see the classics, like Fred Flintstone when he's banging on the door. Wilbur! Look it up. Um, but that's, that's what he's saying. You, you, go, you go, this parable is about someone who's in need. He doesn't have what he needs, so he goes to his friend. His friend may not want to help him, but he will do it because he's audacious. And Jesus is saying, be like that in your prayers. And it has the sense that he didn't give up or not lightly. It is, it is like the parables of Jesus when he talks about the need to, to be ongoing and persevering in prayer. Now, I know some of you have been praying about various issues for many, many years, people who you love and care for. But some of us are very impetuous, very impatient. We ask God for things for a couple of weeks, nothing happens, we forget. And, but he is saying, ask and keep on asking. Jesus tells that story of the widow and the judge which is a similar idea. Jesus does think there are some times when you're going to have to take your need to the only person who can supply it properly and keep on asking. And he responds to need. We'll get back to that in a minute. So that's the first one about why bother. Why bother asking God? Because in the end, he does respond. To, he, you know, Take your needs to the one who can fix it, even if you have to bang on the door a few times. Then we get some promises for the needy. Now, these are both wonderful and troubling, aren't they? Uh, clearly bouncing off the story in front, verse 9, I say to you, it's always important, who's the I again? Why should we listen to this guy? Ah, that's right, the Son of God. I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. And then verse 10 is a complete waste of space, isn't it? Jesus got got time to kill, so he just thought he'd say the same thing again. Although it's different, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Here he's giving promises to us. This is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He doesn't lie. But he gives to us a promise in three parts. It's the same thing really said. It's sort of bouncing off the story before asking, knocking, that sort of thing, trying to get help. And we ask and keep on asking. And it's a promise. Jesus wants you to know that God delights to hear and answer your prayers. I take it that's why he repeats it. And I've 
said this to you before. This is the shame you didn't get a, a fresh speaker. They wouldn't have said something you'd heard before. But it is interesting to me that in so many of Jesus, when he teaches about prayer, he repeats these promises. He does it in John 14. He does it in John 16. He makes the promise and he repeats it. Why would he repeat it? I, I, I think it says it's important. I think it's secondly because we're going to have trouble believing it. The free, as it almost blank check that God gives to his friends or a father does to his children. But it's not quite a blank check and you know that, don't you? Because we've just seen a request to the one who can answer prayer just before that. Where someone comes to Jesus. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. No. Uh, and many of you know, no is an answer to a prayer. Right? And there are some times when because of God's great love for you, he says no. Often enough, he says, wait. Right? And that can, it can feel as if it's nearly going to kill us sometimes as we wait. Right? And there are, in James, in James chapter 4, we're going to see a similar thing where the brother of Jesus says, you do not have because you do not ask. Right? We've got all these needs we've got and we haven't got round to asking God. We've tried all other things. And then he says, but when you ask, you don't receive because you're asking for your own self-centeredness. So there are times when God, as the Father, will not, he'll say no or not yet. But the fundamental relationship Jesus wants to make clear to us is, if you are in need, go to your friend and be fearless because he's given you promises. And even better, go to your Father. Again, the question is food, right? that which is needful. The son does not ask for a lobster, he asks for a fish, which is a standard everyday sort of protein. He asks for an egg, and um, what Jesus says is, God will not give you something evil. Uh, you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. You know, if you said, close your eyes, I've got a surprise. It could feel similar, because they both sort of wiggle a bit. Right? But he's saying, he won't do that, he's good, the father. He will give you that which is good. And then, do please notice, because this is a, a big thing, we're, we're going to sort of finish around this point. When Jesus does this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount some months earlier um, on prayer, he has a similar point. If you then, verse 13, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. This is a standard biblical understanding, isn't it? We are both able to do good, but there's also something fundamentally flawed and evil about us. If, if you, talking to his disciples, if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids... How much more will your Father in heaven give? And at Math, in Matthew it says, good gifts to those who ask him. But here Jesus teaches a different flavour on that. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That seems to be the sort of the culminating best of all gifts for the disciples. So when we talk about one winning one, right, uh, and you go back to what Jesus says, to someone as wonderful and as, as so impressive in so many ways as Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, the very, very good, you need, you need a miracle. You need to be born of the Spirit. You need an out-and-out -out miracle for you to enter the kingdom of God. And the people we pray for will be people who need an out-and-out -out miracle. You may be praying for someone who you think is one of the nicest people in the universe. They need a miracle. Right, to be saved. They need the Holy Spirit to intervene in their life. Or you might be praying for someone who is as wicked a person as you know. 
and they need a miracle. Right? Whether it's someone in prison or whether it's someone in the palace, they're all the same. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. So when you pray for friends and family members, it's helpful to something. Let me pray about how the Holy Spirit may be involved in this. This is the great work. I've put up on, on the St. Matt's Facebook site, and I know many of you aren't members, because I think you've got to be over 90 to be on Facebook now. Um, but uh, there's... I put up a, a very famous lecture. It goes for about 28 minutes by a guy called J. Edwin Orr, who's a historian of what, of, of what they call revivals. Not using revival the way that some modern-day churches use. It's utterly brilliant. And if, you, if you're not on Facebook, just take down the name J. Edwin Orr. Look him up on, on YouTube, Prayer and Revival. It's the prayer for the Holy Spirit. And what has happened repeatedly in church history, and this has often been under the guidance of hard-headed Presbyterians, not crazy, over-emotional whatevers. And they'll often, they prayed and prayed, they had specific prayer meetings that the Holy Spirit would come to their area or to their church. And the phrase they often use when they write this down in their diaries is, God did more in a week than he'd done in a decade. Right? That God can do much more in the pouring out of the Spirit. So what to pray? The Lord's Prayer. The major Lord's Prayer here, the minor Lord's Prayer in Luke 10, that God would send out labourers. That's another prayer from the Lord. And you've got this great promise that God loves to give the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus died. And you see that through the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit is repeatedly filling those who were filled at Pentecost, the ongoing work. Well, brothers and sisters, as Jesus says, now that you know these things, how blessed you will be if you do them. Right? The four rocks. Right? The absolute priority of mission. The absolute importance of mercy. The absolute centrality of drawing aside to be with him. And then learning to pray in the similar way that Jesus prayed and that he taught his first disciples. And to pray particularly as we work on soap to draw near to him. Think about who God may use even us to bring to himself and to pray that God would be honoured and he'd send his Holy Spirit right, to make all the difference. Uh, let's pray before the kids come in. Heavenly Father, thank you for the brilliance uh, of the Holy Spirit's work through your servant Luke in bringing these four great rocks together. Uh, thank you, Lord, that at the heart of most things is a fairly simple thing. Help us, Lord, to be people of the one great thing, of drawing near to your Son, knowing him better, loving him better, listening to his words and letting them transform us. And Father, thank you that you are the one who answers prayers. And we do pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit to be people who pray as Jesus has shown us to pray and who call upon you to pour out your Holy Spirit more and more on us as individuals and as your church and as your weapon in the world. Thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen.